we've become too sedentary. We have lost our resilience because we're no longer exposed to the highs and lows of temperatures, the exercise variations, um, you know, the immune challenges that we were once exposed to. Um, and um, that makes us much less resilient. And it means now, as we see um, average air temperatures climbing with climate change, and particularly the peaks of cold snaps and, and heat waves, that we're having more and more problems um, because we just don't have that found foundation of robustness and resilience that comes from those exposures. The question is, how do you do that and how do you do it safely? How do you re-establish that? Welcome to the Degrees of Health podcast. We explore the heat, the cold and the spectrum of health in between. This week, we spoke with Professor Mike Tipton. Mike heads up the Extreme Environments Laboratory at Portsmouth University. In our conversation, we spoke about the dangers of cold water, what happens to your body when cold water hits your skin, autonomic conflict, use it or lose it principle, and what Mike has learned studying humans in extreme environments. It was a really fascinating conversation, and Mike is a very broad cast of mind, discussing a whole number of things related to cold exposure in a sensible, rational, multidisciplinary way. As Anthony D'Angelo once said, become a student of change it is the only thing that will remain a constant with that here's my conversation with mike tipton great well mike firstly thanks so much for doing this um you know big fan of your research and been following along of uh, for a while now just to sort of set the scene how does one end up running an extreme environments lab and what is an extreme environments lab um so uh, let's start with the second question. The, our Extreme Environments Laboratory um, at the University of Portsmouth is a suite of facilities, so it's three chambers. Uh, and between them, they go from minus 25 degrees Celsius to plus 50. Humidity control, obviously temperature control. We uh, can take each of those chambers to 8,000 meters, so we can go pretty much to the top of Everest. So we can actually go minus 20 to 8,000 meters. Um, so combining the stresses, therefore, of altitude and hypoxia. And two of the chambers have immersion facilities in them. So that one of them is um, two and a half meters deep. So we can do some immersion and, and, and shallow hyperbaric stuff. And the other chamber, the immersion facility is a swimming flume, which for those who don't know is a, is a swimming treadmill. So you swim along and you stay still. And that's really useful for us because it means we can test people without having to chase them up and down a pool or uh, you know anything like that they stay stationary um, but we can also do interesting things like um, get people to swim at altitude so we can look at interesting combinations we also have the ability to increase wind speed and solar load and things like that these are all, all critical components in the stress that an environment represents uh, how do you get into it well uh, by chance, really, I guess. I mean, I was a swimmer as a youngster, so I had an interest in water. Um, I wasn't designed to be a swimmer. It was just something my mother was into and had taught for years. And then I did a, a master's at King's College in London, part of which took me to the Institute of Naval Medicine, where I met a guy called Frank Golden, um, who was doing a study on swim failure in cold water. So there were, by then I was interested in temperature regulation and how the body controls its temperature and responds to temperature challenges and so here was a study that actually combined two really major interests in my life temperature regulation and and the aquatics or immersion and so I volunteered to do that study uh, Frank and I became friends and colleagues and we worked together for the next third of a century uh, in the area of cold water immersion the Royal Navy are particularly interested in cold immersion because two-thirds of um, RN personnel that died in the Second World War did so during the survival phase when they were in cold water. So uh, for various reasons, but even so, it, it, it meant that it's, uh, as you'd imagine, if you're, a, if you're an organisation that is by, under or on the sea or flying over it, then you're pretty interested in what happens if you end up in water. Definitely, definitely. The um, so many different variables, it sounds like you can test in the lab when you talk about, you know, you can swimming at altitude. I mean, amazing. What uh, what have you learned from 
Well, actually, what if you let people swimming at altitude? Just like, uh, well, to be honest, not, that not I mean, that was that started off as a bit of a uh, well, not a joke, but it was Greg White, uh, a friend and um, and prof up in Liverpool, um, wanted to do um, something for his fiftieth birthday, fifty things or fifty swims for his fiftieth birthday. So I said, well, if you swim in the flume and we keep and we reduce the altitude, then you can claim to be one of the few people who swum uphill. <laughs> uh, so, so that was just it. But um, of course, like any other uh, endurance athletes, then um, altitude acclimatization is beneficial, both in terms of sea level performance and, of course, performance at altitude. So it's it's those kind of studies where we take people to altitude have been mostly to do with altitude acclimatization but they've also uh and i it may be an area we come on to talk about um it's really important to remember that in the in the natural world you don't just have altitude you don't just have cold you don't just have heat these things combine and when you get to altitude then your um, susceptibility to freezing and non-freezing cold injury goes up so it's, if you really want to know what the risks to say a high altitude mountaineer are, you really want to be able to combine hypoxia or altitude with a cold stimulus. So uh, we've you know we've done that. We've done we've spent quite a lot of time looking at particularly non-freezing cold injury. Okay, um, wow, that that segues very nicely into the into the next topic, which I'd love to explore. Which in one of the papers I read, it opens with a really nice line, which is cold water has been both a villain and a hero throughout history. I'd love to explore the villain side of the, the coin, the, the dangers, as you like. Um, you mentioned non-freezing cold injury. I think this is slightly a lesser known one. Um, maybe we start there. W what is non-freezing cold injury? In oh, sorry, what is non-freezing cold injury? It's pretty much what it says on the tin. It's a cold injury that occurs without freezing of the tissue. So human tissue freezes at about minus 0.53 degrees Celsius. Um, incidentally, sea water freezes about minus 1.9 degrees Celsius, so it's possible to get frostbite in the sea um, because of the salinity of the water and the temperature it can go to. Um, Is that because of salt? It freezes? Yeah. Below, yeah, uh, yeah. So, the, uh, the human, I mean, human tissue uh, has some salt in it, but not as much as seawater. So, seawater freezes at a lower temperature, so you can get frostbite in the sea. That's not a common problem. However, it has been a problem that's had to be faced by, for example, the Norwegian oil industry. Um, so, you know, of the work we do, about a half is fairly fundamental and mechanistic. And then the other half, about a third is with industry, a third with elite sport and a third with the military. And with the industry, one of the big industries we've worked with has been the oil industry. So back in the 80s and 90s, we were trying to identify and address some of the major issues faced by people having to go and work in the northern North Sea. And one of those issues was the potential for getting frostbite. However, back to non-freezing cold injury. So non-freezing cold injury um, occurs without freezing of the tissue. We don't really know very much about it, although it's been around for centuries and has been a major cause of disability in the military, in mountaineers, people sleeping rough. Um, its symptoms are you get very cold sensitive. So once you've got a cold injury, if you go into the cold, your peripheral blood flow shuts down because it's particularly with cold injuries like frostbite and non-freezing cold injuries, obviously the extremities that are most susceptible because as the body cools, it withdraws blood flow from the skin, cutaneous vasoconstriction, in order to protect the deep body tissues. So it'll sacrifice the extremities in order to protect the deep body tissues. So that's why most people have frostbite. We'll have it on fingers, nose, ears, toes, you know, places like that. Oh, wow. Um, so so it's, it's the body saving vital organs by, I guess, mm. sacrificing the extremities. Yeah. So, so, I mean, going right back, we're a tropical animal uh, evolving in a place uh, sort of eastern, southeastern Africa, where with an average daytime air temperature of about 26 to 28 degrees and an average nighttime temperature of about 10 degrees. Um, now we've migrated across the rest of the planet, but our response to the challenges that came from that migration have been addressed by technology 
by using our intellect. Other animals have got more fur, have got more blubber, have changed their shape. Uh, humans have always tended to rely on their intellect. So caves, fires, housing, clothing, all of these. And they, this, I mean, the use of these uh, dates back literally thousands of years in terms of fires and, and clothing and cave use. Um, but what that means is right at the core of it all, we haven't changed very much from our evolutionary origins in terms of our thermal preferences. All we've done is we've used technology to recreate next to the skin and through the body, the profile that we would have had if we were naked in 28 degree air. So if anyone on the planet says, I feel thermally comfortable, I'll pretty much guarantee they'll be within half a degree of a mean skin temperature of 33 degrees Celsius. Their core temperature will be 37. Their mean skin temperature will be 33. And that's a gradient down which in an air temperature of 26 to 28 degrees Celsius, heat can flow without you having to shiver or sweat or, you know, so this is a thermoneutral zone and it's where we evolve. And of course, um, what's the best temperature for exercising in? It's an air temperature of 10 or 11 degrees Celsius, which was the early morning temperature where we evolved. Um, so we've, we've not really progressed much in terms of our thermoregulatory preferences. Um, all we've done is used technology to recreate next to the skin the same environment as we would be in if we were back where we evolved. That's great whilst that technology works. Uh, but then the two sides of the coin is when it doesn't work because there's an accident or something stop, you know, you get your, you, your helicopter ditches, you fall over the side of a boat. You know, your heating system stops working, your car breaks down, then we don't have very much resilience. We don't have very much capability to generate the heat necessary to keep us warm. And of course, the other side of the coin is that we've become so good at controlling our environment and getting those thermal profiles we want that we hardly ever perturb the system. So you're sitting there perfectly comfortable. You'll be perfectly comfortable all day. Even if you go outside on this freezing cold day, you'll put enough clothing on and you'll heat, heat your car enough, not really to experience cold or heat. Uh, and we've become what I call thermostatic. Um, and the problem with that is we're not challenging or perturbing the systems necessary to maintain um, functionality. And we all know that with the musculoskeletal system, that if you don't challenge it, you, you know, it's the use it or lose it phenomenon. You know that you'll get muscle atrophy. You'll get you know diminished mineralization of the of the skeleton. Well, the same thing happens with your immune system. The same thing happens with your uh, with your um, thermoregulatory system, your biochemical systems, your metabolic system. And we've just become too sedentary, too comfortable, and and too capable of using technology to control our environment. And the problem also with that, of course, is the technology we're using consumes resources requires fossil fuels to be burnt which is contributing to you know the excess existential threat to the species that's amazing the uh do you think there's a human benefit to exposing ourselves to various different temperature and getting out yeah, I, I mean i do i mean I'm, I'm constantly walking the knife edge between telling people to be careful and telling people to do stuff <laughs> Because, um, yes, absolutely. I think one of our problems is we've become as a so obviously we're talking about high income and in a sort of geographical north in particular. Uh, we've become too sedentary. We have lost our resilience because we're no longer exposed to the highs and lows of temperatures, the exercise variations, um, you know, the immune challenges that we were once exposed to um, and um, that makes us much less resilient and it means now as we see um, average air temperatures climbing with climate change and particularly the peaks of cold snaps and, and heat waves that we're having more and more problems um, because we just don't have that found foundation of robustness and resilience that comes from those exposures. 
the question is how do you do that and how do you do it safely how do you re-establish that uh, and that's you know an interesting part of the discussion definitely definitely to let, let's get into that then so what do we need to be aware of what what are, what are, what are the main cold hazards that actually happen when people get cold exposure wrong whether it be cold swimming or plunging what, you know, what, what do we have to be cautious of what could happen well let's go right back to where this um sidetrack started which was the non-freezing cold injury so um non-freezing cold injury is a is damage to the peripheral uh neurovasculature and it we don't really know or despite trying and trying but we don't really know the extent to which this is neural is vasculature we don't know the pathogenesis we don't know even the pathology but we do know that with varying degrees of exposure to cold uh, particularly cold wet um so i mean this thing has been called paddy foot trench foot in the past um, that exposure to cold, damp situations, cold, wet situations, can produce a non-freezing cold injury. So i.e. the tissues haven't frozen, and that leaves you with cold sensitivity. Um, it leaves you with um, hyperhidrosis. Uh, so you sweat in the injured part, and you're left with intractable pain. And that can that can last for the rest of your life, and can progress to the requirement for amputation. So it's not that much of a difference in terms of outcome. To something like frostbite in that regard. Um, most people who go into the cold for leisure pursuits have never heard of non-freezing cold injury. Um, but I suspect, like me, they're at least moderately cold injured. And if you talk to them about, you know, do you find that your feet get cold very quickly, stay cold for a long while, are hard to warm up, sometimes painful? Well, that's 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 the, you're starting along the, you know, the progression of non-freezing cold injury. Um, the, I mean, the other risks, um, aside from that, are the cold produces a sudden vasoconstriction, as we've talked about, withdrawing blood from the extremities, sacrificing them to protect the, the deep body tissues. That pushes up blood pressure. So you've now got a reduction in your peripheral blood flow and there's an increase in your cardiac output. So that increases the pressure of the system. So you get hypertension. And that is particularly hazardous for people with pre-existing hypertension, aneurysms, you know, where people susceptible to um, cardiovascular uh, incidents. Um, with going into cold water, not, not cold air, because this requires a sudden fall in, in skin temperature, that sudden fall in skin temperature stimulates the cold receptors that are about 0.18 millimeters below the surface of the skin and produces what we termed back in the 80s cold shock. Uh, it's you'll hear it referred to as cold water shock in some places, but it's cold shock and it's a gasp. It's a hyperventilation. It's an increase in the blood pressure, increase in the, in the workload of the heart. And it is responsible for up to about 60 percent of the deaths that we see on immersion in cold water. I mean, the thing that got me into this area originally were the statistics. And those statistics were something like worldwide. There's about a thousand immersion deaths a day. That's an underestimation uh, because a lot of the deaths are in uh, countries, low-income countries, where the deaths aren't recorded. So that's a thousand deaths a day. In the UK, it's about the death every thirty hours and one child a week. Um, and originally, it was thought that those deaths were due to hypothermia. That persisted right through until probably the sixties and seventies, where we started to see evidence from the statistics, the laboratories anecdotal accounts that something much more rapid was killing people. The Home Office published a report in 1977 saying two-thirds of those that died died within um, a couple of metres of a safe refuge and were regarded as good swimmers. That's not hypothermia, that's something very quick and that led us on to investigate sudden immersion in cold water and to identify cold shock as a precursor to cardiac problems and drowning on immersion. So, no. the, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, so was was it the cold shock or was this is this the segue to the autonomic conflict no it's it's cold shock um i'll talk to you a bit about cold autonomic conflict so if we just finished the cold shock so a gasp your gasp with cold shock is two to three liters the lethal dose of salt water into the lung 
for the starting of the drowning process is about one and a half litres. So that first is sufficient if your airway happens to be under the water, you're in choppy water, it's breaking on your face, you've fallen from a height, you're in a ditched inverted craft, that first breath in is sufficient to, to cause drowning. Um, the, if, at the, if, you, if you do a head in immersion, sorry, head out immersion, then you'll just stimulate the skin receptors from there down, and those skin receptors will produce cold shock. If you just do a face immersion, which is a classic student protocol, you stimulate the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve. These are cold receptors around the eyes and nose and mouth. And that produces the um, diving response, which has been known about since Paul Burt first wrote about it in 1870. And that diving response slows the heart, um, helps you breath hold, and changes the distribution of blood within the body to keep your blood pressure normal. And it's, it's, the, it's a response which diving mammals have to go under the water for, you know, in the case of a, a large whale, for maybe 90 minutes. The problem we have as humans is we have a, a sort of um, weak diving response. It's stronger when you're a child and it, it diminishes with age. And we have a cold shock response. And those two responses um, are in conflict. So if I do a head out immersion, I'm only going to get the cold shock response. If I if the water splashes on my face and I breath hold, I've now got two responses going into the heart. The cold shock response is trying to up the heart rate. That's the cold shock response. It's a sympathetic nervous system driven response that increases the strength of contractility of the heart and the heart rate. But I've also now stimulated the diving response, which is trying to decrease the contractility of the heart and slow the heart rate. And what we found is that um, those two responses conflict. They're the two arms of the autonomic nervous system, cold shock sympathetic, diving response parasympathetic nervous system. And those two responses conflict. And within about 10 seconds of breaking breath hold, when you're in that situation where the water's on your face or you're going under the water, you'll see um, some form of cardiac arrhythmia in about 83% of otherwise young, fit, healthy individuals. And normally, that's uh, it's a very reproducible way of producing those arrhythmias, but normally they're not um, that catastrophic. However, if you happen to have some predisposing factors like cardiovascular disease, long QT syndrome, some channel um, abnormalities in your heart, um, ionic channel abnormalities, then that can, they, those responses can progress to more dangerous ECG. Um, now, uh, abnormalities, we, we've called it, Mike Shatter, professor at King's, cellular cardiologist, and I worked together on this over a decade ago now, and we called it autonomic conflict, because it's a conflict between the two arms of the, of the, of the diving. Uh, response and the, and the cold shock response, the two arms of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, you know, interesting academically, in, interesting in terms of cardiac responses, but the, so why here? Everyone's shouting. Well, it's, it's worth noting that um, around about 80% of those that die, for example, in triathlons, die uh, during the swim, and they particularly die during the mass starts and where people come to turn and uh, turn around boys because people come together and congregate. Now, those people haven't died when they were training. So the question is, what is it about the event that's made them more likely to, and the deaths are quite often cardiac in, in, in cause. And the question is, what is it about the event that's made that more likely? And, it's, and it, we think it's um, autonomic conflict. We think that people have started, they've started in this melee of people, um, they've turned to breathe and they've not been able to because there's a plume of water on their face from the person next to them. So they extend their breath hold. Um, their sympathetic drive is up because they're in a big event. Their diving response is evoked because they're now holding their breath with their face covered in water. And on the next breath they take, they get this cardiac arrhythmia, which descends into something more dangerous. So, you know, from the, uh, it's the nice thing about applied physiology, Ben, is you start off with all that stuff I was talking about in terms of cold receptors and cardiac responses and you come to something like well actually organize your triathlon so that people um, don't end up you know going out on a mass start have waves have small waves um, you know if you're going to go and do open water swimming avoid breath holding when you're swimming 
You know, if you can avoid having your face in the water and holding your breath and swimming for as long as you can on a breath hold, you significantly decrease your chance of having a cardiac problem. So again, the, the, the nice thing about applied physiology is you understand the mechanisms and then you tease that through to just some simple practical advice. And I can we, we can talk about that in terms of the design of emergency breathing systems. We can talk about that in terms of how you get people out of the water, what you say to them when you're getting them out of the water. All follows that same pattern of understand the physiology, understand the mechanism, because it'll allow you give um, scientifically underpinned um, valid advice. I think the the appetite for the understanding of the mechanisms is sort of higher than it's ever been with the new uh, found interest in cold swimming and cold water immersion, be it static in an ice bath or swimming in a cold body of water. So just so, so, so I and the listener understand, the thing to be wary of when it comes to sort of autonomic conflict is the autonomic the, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system so the fight and flight plus the mammalian dive reflex which is in conflict with that plus a breath hold is you don't you don't want to you don't want to uh, yeah yeah i mean you know, if you're going to go swimming and you're going to do freestyle so your face is going to be in the water keep breathing regularly don't i mean we have had incidents where people have gone in the water decided they're going to swim out on a breath hold as far as they can and when they break their breath hold they then have to be rescued um and the if if i do a head out immersion i've got about a, as a young fit healthy individual remember because all our studies are done on people who are obviously volunteers but have also had a full medical they're under the age of 39 um and we'll see about a one percent incidence of cardiac arrhythmia if it's a head out immersion um, as soon as we add a breath hold to that, it goes up to about 60%. And if we add a face-in breath hold to that, an extended breath hold, it's up to about 83 84%. So it's a, a remarkably good way of confusing the heart. Um, and it, it really is to be avoided. Now, if you start saying, well, I'm now somebody in my 50s, I've probably got a little bit of cardiovascular disease, um, you know, it's even more imperative that you don't combine that face in protracted breath hold um, combination that is likely to evoke autonomic conflict. Mm, definitely. I think that's such, that's such uh, valuable information because I think you see all sorts of people. I mean, Eloise and I, we like to get in our plunge most days, but you see all sorts of people just sort of touting all sorts of advice on online and, you know, challenges and dunking yeah, their yeah. head on the ice buff without any information or uh, or context so i think that's a really important message to get across well we see it uh, you know I mean, I mean i would even avoid doing things like if i'm sitting in a cold in cold water splashing water on my face i just would avoid that i mean i think we had quite a few cardiac issues early in the morning when people get out of bed and go in and wash their face um we know that from the from the ice bucket challenge we had several people have problems um and we think the reason we didn't see more is because most people who did the ice bucket challenge put their head down and poured the water on the back of their head. So it plumed out like that and didn't hit this area. The ones that we heard about that had a problem had done it like that. They put their head back and poured the water on their face. So, you know, it's, I mean, you know, it's just a sensible thing if it, to uh, minimize your risk. I mean, what we're all about, we're not trying to stop people doing stuff. As you, as you heard at the start, I'm quite keen for people to do things. Um, um, but it's just a matter of giving people the information that enables them to maximize the, the benefits and minimize the potential risks. Mm. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's cold shock. So that's the other important thing to note about that is those cold receptors adapt within about a minute to 90 seconds. So even though you're experiencing it in the first minute of immersion, the gasping, the hyperventilation. Just knowing that it's going to go away improves your survival and prospects. We know that we've done studies that show that the people that know that this is going to abate do better than those that don't. Um, it's the neurophysiological equivalent of it's okay once you're in. You know, you get the, the skin gets you down to the water temperature that you've no longer got the dynamic response of those cold receptors, which is what was driving cold shock. And now people report being pretty comfortable. You know, once that once that's happened. The next issue is as the cold front moves into the body, the superficial nerves and muscles cool. And they're particularly, um, the arms are particularly susceptible to cooling because they're thin, long cylinders 
twice the surface area to mass ratio of the legs, half the conductive pathway, very superficially running nerves and muscles. And within, if you put somebody into water between five and 10 degrees Celsius, within about 10 minutes, they can become physically incapacitated to the point of not being able to swim. And so the next bit of advice is, you know, if this is something that you're doing, then don't stay in for more than 10 minutes. Uh, you know, I mean, there are obviously people who swim the channel and do and, and these are specialists. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, there are people who go to the top of Everest. You wouldn't take the average person and put them at the top of Everest. So, but, you know, but for the general population, it's probably a good idea if you're in very cold water not to stay in for more than five or 10 minutes. And if you're in the summer, and it's a bit warmer, even then, you know, 20 minutes, because it's not a hypothermia. You're not, hyper, you're not going to become hypothermic in less than 30 minutes in, in even the coldest water because we're just too big. We've got too much heat stored in us. But you can get cold shock. You can get peripheral cooling, physical incapacitation long before that. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, you know, we've had incidents of people swimming offshore and then not being able to get back. So silly things like if you're going to swim, swim parallel to the shore and try and stay in your depth. So if you start to feel a, phys you know, a reduction in your physical capability, your ability to swim, you can just stand up. Um, yeah, I mean, so there, I mean, there the cardiorespiratory, drowning, cardiac problems, physical incapacitation, neuromuscular incapacitation, all are risks associated with going into the cold, into cold, into cold water. You don't see cold shock when you go into cold air because it just simply doesn't cool the skin quick enough. You do see on water. And then finally, you know, you get into hypothermia. Um, but the vast majority of people are not going to have a problem with that unless they overstay their welcome or they become injured or incapacitated in a very cold environment. Mm. It's really interesting. I, I've, I've, um, I've been using the ice bath and familiar with cold exposure for a while. And I've noticed that the shock, the gasp response, the that fight or flight, it's dramatically less now. I mean, we had to break the ice on the the plunge this morning, and that was still there. But it it it, it, it the difference between starting cold exposure and that shock response versus when you actually you know you a bit more practice and your body is uh, slightly more adapted. I've noticed in myself and others that that massively shrinks, and you get a, and you get more comfortable. Saying that it's you know, probably the strong swimmers drown, right? So there's an element of... Yeah, uh... I mean, there's a couple of interesting points that come from that. Yes, we are have a real ability to habituate to that response. Uh, and it's habituation because it's a decreased response to a, a, a constant stimulus in terms of the water temperature. Um, and in as few as sort of six, two or three minute immersions, we've shown that you can halve that cold shock response that you're talking about, the gasp and the hyperventilation. and then. 14 months later, um, which is as long as we managed to convince people to come back, really, uh, we ran out of friends at 14 months. Um, even then, the cold shock response was still reduced by 25%. So it's a fairly significant change. We did, we've done some interesting experiments around that habituation. So we've repeatedly immersed one half of, of the body and got an habituation. This bit, you know, the bit that stayed in air, we had a wetsuit on, was kept warm. When you flip people over and immerse the bit that's never been in the water, they still show that habituation. So it's occurring more central than the peripheral cold receptors, which is interesting, which may explain why it's quite, it's quite permanent. When you put somebody like Lewis Pugh into the cold water, who's the guy who swims to raise the issue of plastic in the oceans and climate change, great guy. All right, he, he swam in the Arctic and Antarctic. Yeah, okay, yeah no, way. he does a lot. And he, do, he also swam all the way along the south coast of, of Britain. So he, he was talking about crossing the channel, but doing it the lengthwise rather than the widthwise. Um, and when he swam past Portsmouth, he came, well, before he did it, to be fair, he came to the lab just to check because he can go into the swimming flume that we've got. He can do the swim. We can get him to swallow pill, a pill that um, transmits his deep body temperature. Uh, we can measure how much energy he's expending. And we can say, yeah, okay, provided you... The water temperature is this, you're exercising this hard, you can go for this long. And that's the kind of way we could help somebody like him, Lewis. And, and But when he, got, when he got into the cold water, if you were just looking at the trace of his breathing and his heart, you wouldn't have known where he got in the cold water. 
um, because it, it, there was no change. He is so habituated to cold that it was an absolute flat line in terms of change in heart rate or change in, in breathing. So that shows you the extent to which you can habituate. I mean, a, th a massive tick in the box of use it or lose it principle, I guess, which I think is a general rule from, I mean, I find it with, with reading. If I, if I take a week off reading, I'm, I feel le less sharp, like I'm processing information slower. And yeah. A wonderful tick in that box. I'm pleased you mentioned Lewis, Lewis Pugh, is it? Yeah. I read recently, and I'd love your thought, your take on this, that um, when he went to the Antarctic, his temperature was being measured before he got in the water and it was as if the temperature of his internal body started rising before he got in the cold water almost like a pavlovian stimulus and response he sees the cold water and his body responds in a way i mean i'd love your take on that um um healthy skepticism that's my take. Okay. Okay. <laughs> as as it should be with most people, with most things. I mean, I think we've become a little bit too accepting uh, in terms of some of the things we're, we're told, and particularly as more and more people have access to tell people more and more things without actually having done any of the basic research to actually understand what's going on. So that um, Lewis works a lot with Tim Noakes, who's a very good scientist in South Africa that I, I know uh, and I'm friends with and, and respect. Um, I it's quite difficult. Uh, this anticipatory rise in metabolism is what you're talking about. It's quite difficult to tease out, and it has been reported. Um, but I can also tell you that when we when we have people going into a lab where they're going to do a cold water immersion, they will have an increase just because of anxiety. I mean, if you're about to dive into cold water or jump into cold water you're going to have a sympathetic response and that's going to shut down your peripheral blood flow a bit. You're going to get cold, clammy hands. You're going to increase your me metabolic rate. Um, you know, if you happen to go into a cool environment next to the pool as well, then you're going to up your metabolic rate further. And so at that time, you've got quite a lot going on, which is conserving and increasing heat production, but no heat loss going on. So it's not surprising in that situation that you see an increase in body temperature. Mm. So, you know, if, if if that, I mean, so that would be my explanation rather than something like a psychologically driven metabolic response. Okay, in, yes. In fact, when you, when you go into cold water, the vast majority of people, if you measure their deep body temperature by whichever route you want to use, will not change for five or 10 minutes. In fact, it may well go up for the first five or 10 minutes for the reasons I've just said, your heat production and, and heat loss, uh, minimizing heat loss responses are all neurogenically driven. So as soon as that skin temperature falls, you'll start some gentle shivering, some uh, without um, you know, it's, it's shivering, you'll vasoconstrict, but it takes a while for you to start losing temperature from the core of your body. Because as I say, we're a big animal and it takes a while for that cold front to get to the core. So for the first few minutes of an immersion, you've got heat production exceeding heat loss. So deep body temperature goes up and then eventually you'll see it start to come down. Um, so all of this, you know, pre-cold or early cold exposure increases in temperature, I think can be explained by the mechanisms by which heat loss is reduced, heat production is increased and core temperature grade, conductive gradients are established. It's a, a timing function i think okay fantastic that's uh that's super interesting you know there's always um i think the the trap for um people who are new to this including myself is there's always often more than one mechanism that can be proposed and i think people can jump on one mechanism and ignore the uh the other side of the coin so i think that um, yeah i agree i mean of course the important thing for people who are going into cold water is the reverse happens when you come out uh, and so when you come out, by the time you come out, you've established a cooling gradient. And that's from the skin through the superficial tissues to the core. If I now come out and go into warm water or uh, go, or, or put on a, you know, a, a robe to try and warm me up, that will warm the skin. But it's going to take a while for that warm front to move into the center of the body. Meanwhile, the core will still be losing heat to the intermediate tissues. And that's what's been called the after drop. 
it's uh, and it, and it's just a phenomenon of the fact that your core temperature changes when you go into cold and come out of cold are conductive and those conductive pathways take five or ten minutes to reverse so if you measure somebody's core temperature and all they've done is come out of the water and wrap themselves up and to get warm it'll be at the coldest it's been all day about 10 minutes after they leave the water that's not that's not a good time to be driving a car incidentally (laughs) yes yes well actually that's that's the point i was gonna i was gonna mention of the um i think yeah one of the biggest risks is when you're operating heavy machinery or suddenly doing going about your normal day after a cold swim um which i think just having a general aware or awareness of is 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 very useful um okay so we've covered a lot of the risks associated with it on the other side of coin you know what are the benefits you know somebody who studied this intensely what what would you say the main benefits of cold water exposure are yeah i mean just let me mention two or three other quick things because people may um, so we've talked about the thermal we're also seeing an increased incidence of swimming induced pulmonary edema uh, where the you know you, the, the lungs start to accumulate fluid um uh, and it's to do with the cold vasoconstriction wearing a tight wetsuit and if you start to feel that you've got that you know you need to uh, come out of the water loosen the wetsuit sit down do pursed lips breathing get to hospital and and warn people that you may have sight uh, and the other thing that i'm seeing more and more of um, simply because of the numbers involved because the numbers going into cold water for the beneficial side of things has absolutely gone up exponentially and we're seeing as a consequence of things more uh, of things like um, transient global amnesia where people go into the cold water come out and can't remember having been, you know, they lose their memory. Uh, this was made particularly high profile because Michael Mosley, who does a lot of BBC science work, suffered it. And again, um, it's not long lasting, although you don't ever re- seem to remember the the, the, the the immersion, but you get everything else back, you know, you remember everything else. Um, and, you know, there are various it's about one in a hundred thousand, so one in ten thousand people. Uh, major risk factor: history of migraines, um, short-lived, eight to ten hours. Um, no really long-term effects, as I say, apart from not being able to remember the um, the episode. Uh, and it's seen in cold water immersion. It's seen in sporting events, and occasionally it's seen um, following sex. So um, right. <laughs> getting cold it, at a sporting event um and having though combining those three is not not very good. Yeah. No, um, probably not, not gonna win yourself any fans if you uh you know no, post, no. Uh, um, not, I remember it what, what's so, the proposed mechanism behind that just out of interest um that uh, unknown uh oh. unknown i mean going into cold is i mean that you do i mean is there is a fairly large neural activation going on i mean all those cold receptors are sending afferents into the central nervous system you've probably done a bit of hyperventilating so you've changed your um cerebral blood flow so but nobody really knows all they can say is it's mostly uh affects older men although the last two incidents i've been told about and been talking about have been um older women rather than men um uh, and as I say, it's uh, we again. It's another thing where we don't really know the pathology uh, in terms of the cause, but we just through the you know through the number of of cases that we're seeing, you're starting to piece together the profile of the person, older person, a history of migraines. Um, but there's no. I, it's, it's going to either be a blood flow issue or just uh, a neural afferent input. I think, but probably a blood flow. Interesting. Really, really interesting. I think there's so many different levers that cold exposure pulls on. Um, it's always quite, uh, yeah, definitely interesting when you see these extreme cases to hypothesize about a mechanism. Um, we just, just while we're on that, I think there's a nice tangent to this question. There's so many different ways this literature could go. Where do you see it going over the next five to 10 years? What's that? Um... With the literature around cold exposure. Oh. So I think we did. I mean, I'll send you some links to a few papers that people can have a look at if they want to, you know, to follow up on some of the things I've been saying. 
Um, I think what we'll see, uh, I think the, the area of cold, the, the, the kill side of the kill cure aspect of cold water immersion, I think has been pretty well researched. I think we'll see some more stuff on the more recent concepts like autonomic conflict. But I think we know quite a lot about the physiological pathways to cardiac problems and drowning. And it's been well researched and it's in the literature and available. Um, the cure side that we've came we've coming on to talk about is much less well researched. It's much more dependent on anecdote. Um, and I think we'll see better and better studies. I mean, the problem with that side of things is, you know, people are doing different cold exposures. There's no proper matched controls. Uh, you know, people are at different levels of acclimatization. They're different ages. They're different fitnesses. They're going in for different periods of time. Um, there's a placebo effect of doing it. I mean, if you imagine what happens when somebody goes down for a swim in the sea, um, they normally meet up with other people. They're in a beautiful environment. They go into water, which is weight bearing. They, okay, it's cold. Um, they do some exercise and then they come out and they feel like I've achieved something. You know, they've conquered cold water. They have a hot chocolate, a piece of cake. Now, any one of those could be the active ingredient in making this make you feel better. Um, we know, for example, that exercise does the same thing. It's whether, so what's really required, and we'll see, I think, in the next few years, um, I, colleagues at, at Portsmouth that work, we you know that I work with on this area, somebody like um, uh, Dr. Heather Massey is doing research in this area, where we might start to see, we will start to see controls where you isolate cold as the active ingredient. You're moving towards it by doing an ice bath, because when you do an ice bath, you're, you know, okay, you're going into water. Um, but you're really getting cold. You're not getting, you're not meeting other people, having hot chocolate, you know, going into a blue green environment, you know, therapy. So there's some, there's some, uh, that's kind of moving in the right direction. But what we're really lacking is properly controlled, the controls. At the end of last year, there was a paper done um, where I think they started off with around about 9,000 papers. <clears throat> and by the time they'd sifted them, um, they ended up with about 24 papers that were, and of those, about 15 probably had a bias, three-week chance of a bias. Um, and, and what that means is that, the, you, you know, you, haven't, you can't have the same level of confidence in the findings. So we need properly controlled, randomised trials um, <coughs> that will um, give us some idea um, of the active ingredient now for the people who are doing it like yourself you don't care i mean you know you're getting benefit from this or you, you know you that's your and in fact the papers that have been published the the most common reported benefit is a perception of well-being a perception of improving health um uh when you start looking at the immune system the jury is still out when you look at the inflammatory related issues um, which cold can be good for uh it's you know there's some we have some hypotheses and proposed mechanisms but none that have been tested mm. so i um you know it's uh it's that's where we'll see the difference in the next in the next few years i mean to make it more confusing as well i think a lot of the proposed benefits are mental and mm. that makes it even harder to test i mean how do you test for um a general feeling of psychological resilience and well-being and like you the micro stresses of the day wash over you slightly less and affect you less um that's the one thing anecdotally i can definitely say is the your perception to stress from a physiological point of view or my perception of stress from a physiological point of view seems better able to uh, handle stress um which is interesting so um I mean, I mean, just just following up on that, I mean, you know, we have hypotheses for why this may be beneficial. And for example, uh, you talk about stress, psychological stress. Well, cold water is a stress. And we think that the adaptation that you get that we've talked about um, to cold may well not be specific to cold. It may have some crossover, some cross adaptive 
um, aspect to other stressors in your life. And maybe down at, a, at even a cellular level, your tolerance to stress, where these, you know, where you have some common pathways that are basically the response to stress, whether that be cold, whether that be heat, whether that be psychological, are actually improved. And so your resilience improves. Now, that's pure speculation. I have no evidence other than, you know, I can describe some pathways. I can say, you know, I can talk about, um, uh, you know, potential mechanisms, but they've not been tested. Now, for you, you know, you, that, that's really interesting. But whilst you're anecdotally experienced or perceiving these benefits and for the loads and loads of people I talk to, I do lots of work, for example, with the blue tits who are a tremendous force for good in terms of water safety. And I've been at events where they, I mean, the numbers here locally in Perrinporth have gone from 25 to 1,000 uh, members. Oh. And, it's, and some of these people are in tears talking about the benefits that they've accrued from doing this uh, activity. Um, and that's all they need to know. But what I want to know, for the same reasons that we start, discussed all the way through this tour, I want to know the mechanisms, because if you can evoke those mechanisms in a different way by maybe immersing, doing a cold presser test, immersing a hand and a foot in cold water rather than the whole body, then you're making that then available to people who can't go into ice baths, can't go into swimming, um, you know, uh, for whatever reason, either accessibility or uh, uh, other conditions. So minimum effective dose with exactly in a safe way. Yeah. And, and what's the mechanism and what and, and therefore exactly it's, you know what's the least i have to do to get wouldn't it be great if all he had to do was stick a finger into a teacup full of iced water it's not going to happen like that but <laughs> it won't be whole body i can tell you it won't be whole body because we've done studies where we've immersed half the body and seen the same physiological responses Brilliant. It, on a similar line the big mistake people make is they think that um longer is better and we've talked about the cold shock response that peaks in the first few seconds of immersion and then is gone within about 90 seconds. And if I was to hazard a guess, again, it's speculative and hypothetical, but I would argue that that's probably the response that, OK, is the most dangerous associated with cold water, but is also the response that underpins the benefits of going into cold water, whether that, that be the um, you know, the claimed improvements to the immune system, short term cold water immersions may prime the immune system. We know that longer term immersions, particularly where you get falls in deep body temperature, actually impair the immune system. We know that the release of adrenaline or all the, all the stress hormones on initial immersion is undoubtedly the mechanism by which cold water sets you up for the day, makes you feel good about yourself. And we also know that adaptation of the cold shock response is probably the thing that underpins that cross-adaptive effect. So if you were to say to me, oh, what's the dose of cold? Well, I would say we know the cold shock response is peaks between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius water. When it go below that, um, all that happens is you don't get a larger physiological response. It just feels colder. And is more painful until you get down to naught to four degrees Celsius, where it's cold pain receptors that are firing. Um, and also, we know that the cold shock response peaks and is over and done within 90 seconds. So I would say, if I was going to say what's a minimum dose, I would say perhaps 90 seconds, one minute to 90 seconds in water between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius. That study's not been done, so I don't know. But I, I. My worry is that because I know what happens when we do a lot of work with elite athletes and you talk about acclimatizing them and they think, well, if I'm supposed to do 10 minutes, if I do 20 minutes, I'll be it'll be twice as good. It mm. doesn't work like that with temperature. All that happens when you do 20 minutes rather than 10 is you increase the risk twofold rather than increasing the benefit. Mm. Sort of nonlinear in the, in the, in the other way. Yeah. The, uh, I get, I, on that, it's so, it's so interesting because the... I was reading lots into sort of brown fat and apparently the mechanism goes cold shock response or autonomic arousal followed by norepinephrine in the brain or adrenaline in the brain. And then that stimulates the hypothalamus to then, I guess, uh, stimulate your brown fat um, or I don't know, brown fat mitogenesis or whatever it is. Um, but I was reading that apparently the mechanism is through norepinephrine or through that adrenaline, through the cold shock response. So 
Would, I mean, do, is, is that consistent with what you've read? And... Yeah, I mean, the brown fat story, I know people are very evangelical about it. And uh, the guy to go to for me with that is a guy called Walter D. Van Marken Lichtenbelt, who published a paper in 2021. He, he was a real advocate for brown fat initially. Um, and he's he's written a really nice review paper, which is now two or three years old, on human um, brown fat a decade later and has come to the conclusion that some of the claims initially made about for brown fat were probably over-egged. And as with everything else in physiology, it's an integrative thing. Um, so he actually comes to the conclusion that it's not going to be the magic thermogenic bullet. It's not going to produce sufficient heat, uh, you know, in terms of thermal um, heat production to keep you warm. But it probably does um, in combination with skeletal muscle, liver, the cardiovascular system, the CNS, work with those tissues to combat things like metabolic syndrome uh, and some lifestyle factors that are impacted by you know, poor nutrition and, and low physical activity. So there's definitely a role for brown fat. I don't think that it's a thermogenic role. I think it's more a metabolic role. Uh, we can put the link to that paper if people want to bone up on that. Yeah, it, definitely. It, any, it, any links we can put in the show yeah. notes. And, I mean, um, the other the other point, which which takes us full circle, really, because we're back to where we started talking about people exposing themselves to cold, to heat. It's kind of interesting that whilst this has been done for, you know, most people are doing it, if you look at the literature for mental health reasons, I mean, the studies that have been done looking at different age groups, they all talk about perceived mental health benefits until you get to the 65 year olds and above who talk about it being for fitness as well. So it is a perceived mental health benefit. Um, however, uh, we're also seeing creeping into the clinical literature, people going into the heat and going into the cold for a whole range of clinical uh, conditions where we're we've now got to the point where people can't go out and exercise they become too unfit so now you're simulating the kind of temperature changes you see by exercise or by being in a cold environment overnight artificially and seeing benefits for a whole range of clinical conditions um so when you say what's going to happen in the next 10 years i think one of the things we'll see in the next 10 years unless we change our lifestyle we'll see uh exposures to heat cold for a wide range of um physical and mental conditions being um you know uh proposed in terms of uh of, of clinical interventions so you may well go and get a prescription for you know 10 cold water immersions or a, you know or a recommendation to go and join a group that does this mm. um it's it's i i wrote a, a paper we'll put a link into the thing on you know, the importance of perturbing the homeostatic systems of the body. And in that gives a whole list of all the different kinds of of conditions from type 2 diabetes, some sort of inflammatory conditions, um, depression, that seem to be benefiting from controlled exposure to extreme environments. That's fascinating. I think it's, uh, it's an interesting point of people can feel things anecdotally, but yet you the need to understand that it hasn't been backed up with double blind scientific controls to actually make the claim for sure. And I think it's this discrepancy between it's wonderful. You feel these things, but you know, absolutes are rare birds, right? And you can't claim absolutely that this is happening through this mechanism. And I think there's a little bit of, uh, people are going too far with the hype and forgetting it's getting dislocated with the reality of where we're at from the literature, <clears throat> not, People shouldn't do it right, but um, as we spoke about earlier, to do it in a safe, controlled manner. Um, I, mean, just... I, I mean, that point, just to you know, just to pick yeah. up on that, but that's a point, Ben, that applies to everything. Uh, I mean, when I started, if you wanted to find out about something, you had to put in an application to the British Lending Library that would send you the paper, and you only ever found out about things through peer reviewed scientific journals. But now, of course, there are you know. There are Twitter accounts, there are blogs, there are podcasts, uh, and not all of the information that's being provided on those is being provided by people who have got 
a sound understanding or a, a research track record in what they're doing. So one of the things people have to be more and more able to do now than perhaps 30 or 40 years ago is to have critical analytical skills to say the kind of questions which you've asked, you know, okay, you've said that, what's your evidence for that? Can I see the research that you've based that on? You know, what's the quality of the research that you've based that on? Uh, is it, you know, is it valid? Is it published in a reputable journal? Um, and we need to have those skills more and more because we're being confronted on all, in all areas of life with a mass of information and we have to be the ones that sift out the wheat from the chaff. Hmm. I think that that what I what what Eloise and I try and do with you know fostering this conversation through the podcast is to have hold two opposing beliefs at the same time and actually just weigh them up rationally. Um, and I think uh, it it can get hard to do in the hype of where this uh, movement's going. And it's wonderful; people are benefiting so much. But I think um, for me personally, I want to see if something's been replicated more than a couple of times. I'm I'm interested. If it's yeah. a one-off study, I might pique my curiosity, but replication is is for me personally. I might. Can I finish with some fire, quick fire questions? Yeah. Um, great. So this is kind of on the on the literature. If you could know something for sure in the literature, one thing, the wave of magic wand, be like, I would want to know X. What would that thing be? Well, let's stick to the. <laughs> <laughs> there's it's it's more than x yes it's sure. about 100 x uh, okay well let's let's stick to the you know the, the area that we're talking about um i would like to know whether or not it's the initial exposure to cold that underpins the beneficial effects of going into cold water that are reported anecdotally and whether that those beneficial effects are cold related or something else because that way you can now be much more definitive about saying you only need to stay in for 90 seconds and you're going to get these benefits. So your chances of having to call upon the RNLI or the Coast Guard to come and rescue you, which has gone up significantly, uh, you know, is is diminished. Beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. Um, another one is, you know, there's a nice, uh, a nice line of light, which is extremes, good or bad, often educate the best. As somebody who spent a long time studying extreme environments what have extreme environments taught you just about life in general um that humans are much more resilient than they think they are um and they're going to have to be much more resilient going forward i mean the interesting thing about extremes about you know whether it be temperature oxygen all of the you know pressure there's too little is bad for you, too much is. There's an optimum, too much is bad for you. There's an optimal amount. Um, but the more we manage to control that optimum, optimum, the more we've become lacking in our ability to tolerate extremes, and we're going uh, and and to, and to be resilient to change. And we're going to see that. We're going to see in the years to come because of what we've done to our environment, climate change, and increasing temperatures, and cold snaps, and flooding. We're going to see a need for our population to be more and more resilient. Uh, the good news is, from seeing people go into cold, into heat, to altitude, we are able to adapt and become more um, uh, resilient and more acclimatized to those environments. But we need to do something uh, in order to get to that position. So we have the potential to be to adapt to some of the challenges that we will face. Um, but we need to be actively pursuing that acclimatization and adaptation and increased resilience. Brilliant. And I think to end on safety and how can we practice cold exposure in a safe manner, some principles, tools, techniques that you would recommend for people starting out and people who think <clears> they're sort of... Uh, well, um, yeah, largely in response to Wim Hof, shouting into a camera, anyone can do this. We published a paper fairly recently on cold water therapies minimizing risks. So we'll put a link to that in. But basically that's start with a medical. Um, there are a whole range of conditions that would preclude you really from, from taking this up. Uh, and, you know, and if you're thinking of taking it up to lose weight, there's lots of better things you can do, for example. 
Um, so um, make sure that you're fit and healthy enough to take this up. Um, so get a medical check in the same way as you would if you were going to go out and start running or doing anything. Um, then in terms of doing it, um, swim with a recognised group, swim in a safe place, uh, analyse the weather and the swim conditions, and you know depending on where you're doing it. Um, don't stay in for more than 10 minutes. Swim parallel to the shore. Stay in your depth. Enter the water slowly. The cold shock response is bigger the faster you change the skin temperature. Avoid prolonged breath holds. Um, don't rely on how you feel because as you become cold adapted, one of the things that that does is it actually dissociates how you feel from how you are. And there's some classic examples of people cooling to the point of death from hypothermia without actually even ever feeling cold. Um, and that's part of that habituation. So that's a, a negative side of that. Um, if you get into difficulty, um, particularly in the first minutes when you've lost control of your breathing, float on your back. And that's work uh, that we did with Cold Shock underpins the RNLI's Float to Live campaign. So uh, yeah, when you first go in, if you go in accidentally, then float on your, you can float, float on your back until you get your breathing under control. Or if you get into problems at any time, just roll onto your back and float. You can float. Um, and on exiting the water, remember that um, there's a good chance that you won't be warming up for 10, 15 minutes, depending on what you're doing or even longer. So just think long and hard about, you know, when you're going to go and start driving your car or, you know, manip manipulating your complex machinery. <laughs> um, and obviously, when you're in the water, go in with other people, uh, go in with experienced people, wear stuff that can be seen. Um, it, 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 these are all commonsensical things. We've also, as part of that paper, written something for those who are now giving open water experiences to people, because obviously there have been some um, fairly sad events around that. Uh, and a lot of those are just to ensure that people do that uh, and that they know where they're doing it and escape routes and things like that. But I'll put the link to the paper on that. Please, please do, and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, Mike, just lastly, where can we? Where can people find you? Where can they keep up to date with what you're up to and your research? Um, University of Portsmouth uh, website is not bad. Uh, it's you know, it's, I, I, there's my email addresses there. So if people have a specific question, uh, ResearchGate, we try and put as much of our uh, uh, many of our papers on there, freely accessible as possible. Um, but if people see or hear anything they want to uh, get, then probably just drop me an email, and I'll I'll, I'll do my best to get round to it. Brilliant. Well, Mike, there was so many takeaways, so many uh, valuable insights and such actionable information for people. I really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you very much for coming on Thanks, the show. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Cheers.